Welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja. This episode that you will be listening to soon was adapted from my YouTube channel. So you might hear certain idiosyncrasies like me referring to it as a video or something else. So please do forgive those. But otherwise, I hope you do enjoy what's included in this episode. Thank you so much. Hello, Happy New Year. Welcome to Postcolonial Space. This is our first uh, webinar of the year, so I hope uh, slowly you all will join me. I hope you've had a wonderful beginning of the year. And today we will briefly talk about Salman Rushdie, especially Midnight's Children. I am, as you know, Masood Raja, and I'm delighted to be here. And from me to all of you, Happy New Year. I hope this year turns out to be better than the last one. And uh, we will continue this year until we decide otherwise to discuss various post-colonial themes. My plan is to maybe focus on a few good books. That's why I decided to do Midnight's Children. But there are some other suggestions as well, which people have sent my way. And I'll try to make sure that I you know, act on them. Meanwhile, there are a few other developments as well. We now have a full podcast and uh, it's called Postcolonial Space. It's available on all the major podcast platforms. And what I'm doing is I am slowly moving the audio content of a lot of the videos from the channel to the podcast. We also have a Facebook page, which is a Facebook group, which is called Postcolonial Space. You're free to join that as well. And so these are some of the two new developments. Okay, so let me con- welcome, okay, Cat Scratch Coder. I don't know your real name, but welcome. And I'm pretty sure uh, all of our other usual suspects will be here too soon. Infinita is here. Welcome. Happy New Year. So today's topic loosely is Salman Rushdie and Midnight's Children. Now, Midnight's Children is one of my most favorite novels for a lot of reasons. And I consider it Rishti's best work. And of course, a lot of people other than me also consider it. The novel came out in 1981. It won the then what was called the Booker Prize. Then it won later the Booker of Booker Prizes. It also won the 25-year anniversary prize for the Booker Prize. These are some of the accolades that it has received. But another important thing about thing about the novel is that when it came out in England, English novel, the critics had kind of declared it dead. And there weren't many good English novels being produced. So Midnight's Children kind of reinvents the British novel. And, and, and invigorates the novelistic tradition in England and also in the world. Now, a lot of people don't realize that Midnight's Children wasn't Salman Rushdie's first novel. His first novel actually was called Grimace, which was a science fiction sort of a novel. The protagonist is a Native American, but that novel didn't get much traction. And according to one of the critics, Timothy Brennan, the reason is that that novel didn't have a habitus, a habitus in in place. It 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 didn't 
belong to any particular place. Habitus says it comes from Pierre Bourdieu, right? The concept of habitus. So Midnight's Children, of course, it's called a novel of India, and it's more than that. But a novel of India, a novel specifically that deals with freedom of India, its colonial heritage, but also the division of India between Pakistan and India, the creation of Pakistan. And uh, it deals with those issues. The main character and the narrator is Salim Sinai. He is our main character. He is the narrator of the novel. And what makes his narration peculiar is that he is born at midnight when India wins its freedom and when India and Pakistan are created into two separate countries. So that's his birth. And then from then on, his life, if you even the first beginning lines of the novel will tell you, is intertwined with life of India. And every historical event that is mentioned is in one way or the other connected to his life. So in a way, then we can also read in Salim Sinai, he himself as being sort of an embodiment of India. Now, the reason the novel is called Midnight's Children is because 1,000 children, according to the novelistic universe, were born at midnight on August 15, 1947. All of these 1,000 children have magical powers. They are magical. And Salim Sinai is kind of the center of it because he's a telepath. He can read others' thoughts. Not normal human beings, but he can be in contact with the other special children. So that's roughly the idea. And he's the one through whom all of them are connected. And then we follow his life. Part of the novel is life before he is born, even though he himself is narrating it. That's a really interesting narrative technique, of course. And it comes from Tristram Shandy, right? The 19th century novel. And uh, and Rushdie gives credit to it, that creation. There is another modern novel to which Midnight's Children is compared, and that is Gunther Grass's The Tin Drum because the main actor there also narrates his own story, starting from before his birth and then after his birth. And uh, so these are, these are some of the things. Now, towards we go through the whole narrative of India before its independence. Where is placed the life of Salim Sinai's parents? They are from Kashmir region. Then we go through partition and through India's independence. And we go all the way to Indira Gandhi and emergency. We go through 1965, India-Pakistan war, 1971 war, creation of Bangladesh. And then we are in 1980s. This is the time when Indira Gandhi had implemented the emergency. And that's where the novel ends. And we kind of feel like our narrator is disintegrating. He knows that he's not going to survive this. And maybe we're supposed to read that that's what is happening to India as well at that time. Quite a few characters in the novel, but the two prominent minor characters are, of course, Padma. And she is the woman with whom Salim Sinai is staying. She is a worker. 
but she's also the narrator most of the story is told to padma and a few times she intervenes within the narrative and the other minor character that i find important is the character of the of tai who plies a boat on lake dal and he is represented as ancient and part of the land itself slightly stereotypically but that's these are the two characters now a lot of people will tell you that the novel is is extremely postmodern yeah it sound it does sound like x men uh, so now keep in mind that rushdie is heavily influenced by popular culture and we'll get to that but but rushdie of course before he comes to writing serious fiction he what did he write he wrote jingles right for an advertising company so he has that access to popular culture that shows dominantly in all his works but also in midnight children and uh, then this is also of course considered a postmodern novel right so to understand that we have to keep a basic understanding of postmodernism so let's say one important part of it is intertextuality what that means is that an author or a text may borrow stories from another author even the names of the characters and rewrite them so this assumption that i am coming with my original ideas no longer holds in postmodernism because you can play with other people's ideas you can rework the previously published works in your own work so as i mentioned tristram shandy is in here the uh, influence of that is pretty obvious then uh, uh, gunther grass's the tin drum even the opening scene is pretty similar to that another aspect of postmodernism is historiographic metafiction the idea that comes from linda hutchin and i have a whole lecture on postmodernism that you can use to understand it but historiographic metafiction part of it is that you take historical events right and set your story in there sometimes historical characters appear as as characters in the novel right so indra gandhi is represented in the novel as this menacing figure who actually is out to destroy the midnight children so that aspect of it makes it deeply postmodern and then of course self reflexivity a lot of people will say oh the novel is self reflexive they don't really explain what it means so simply what it means is that as you read the novel the novel points to itself itself as being a novel or a story that tells you i am being told i am a story so that part of it makes it postmodern as well and then there is the part which i slightly contend with I I slightly disagree with maybe because people call it magic realism as well. I think maybe there are parts of it which are magic realism but one important aspect of Latin American magic realism is that it's not that there is magic in a story. That's not what makes a novel magic realistic novel. It's that magic is represented as everyday occurrence. If that's so then it becomes a magical real realist novel 
here there that distinction doesn't really hold because most of the time when there are magical beings in the novel they are represented as magical beings their abilities are not represented as everyday normal now if you've read your garcia marquez you already know that when he talks about in 100 years of solitude when people talk about oh so and so could fly it's just taken as granted it's just taken as the unnormal thing and that's the distinction we must make in declaring something magic realism so these are some of the things about the novel that i uh, had kept in of course i mean i'm not going to go over the novel tell you about its plot and all that that you already probably know if you've read it if you haven't read it of course i highly recommend that you read it but the things that are co- covered are the partition of india into pakistan and india and then there are certain climactic events that are covered and that somehow or the other salim sinai pa- finds himself a part of now the novel also becomes a novel of pakistan because there is a part of the novel where salim sinai ends up in pakistan and he is there right at the time when the first dictator of pakistan general ayub khan is planning his coup so he's there during that time and then he's also there and he's kind of lost his senses he's forgotten who he is but his sister had also immigrated to pakistan and then he's there during the 1971 war which of course for bangladesh was a war of independence for pakistanis was a civil war and then for india and pakistan it was a war because india intervened and i think the most beautiful part of the novel is the no- the part of the narrative a few pages when our character salim sinai and a few of his colleagues are traveling through the sundarbans right the mangrove forest in bengal and that i think is the most magical part of the novel we learn about india's struggles and the struggle of the midnight's children maybe to take over the country and its promise but that eventually fails against the implacable forces of the state and salim sinai as a narrator slowly through his life experiences by the end of the novel and if i could read a few passages he is disintegrating and we are not sure if we are supposed to read that as in india's future but here are the here is the last paragraph yes they will trample me trample me underfoot the numbers marching 1 2 3 400 million 500 6 reducing me to specks of voiceless dust just as all in good time they will trample my son who is not my son and his son who will not be his and his who will not be his until the thousand and first generation until a thousand and one midnights have bestowed their terrible gifts and a thousand and one children have died because it is the privilege and the curse of midnights children to be both masters and victims of their times to forsake privacy and be sucked into the annihilating whirlpool of the multitudes and to be unable to live or die in peace what does this remind you of that's why i talked about postmodernism 
I mean, other than the rich narrative richness of the passage, this is this is just how 100 years of solitude ends on the same note. Nations that XXX do not deserve a second chance, right? It's the if you look at the narrative style, even though this is in English and a hundred years of solitude was in Spanish, the ending is pretty much the same, which which points to even stylistic intertextuality of the novel. Okay, so these are some of the thoughts that I have about the novel. Now, of course, I could go into detail. Uh, one thing that comes really clear in this novel, but also in other novels of Salman Rushdie, that he wasn't—he he is not very keen on the partition, and uh, obviously, for whatever reasons, he—he—he he, he doesn't like the idea of Pakistan, and we can talk about that as well. But what comes across here is India as this multitude of promises, right? Even though our characters. main character and all the other magical characters are being crushed there as well right by the implacable political forces but pakistan the way it's it is represented it's 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 a dark place and that will come across when he writes shame and do keep in mind that you know, shame was written at a time when pakistan was under its second military dictatorship so uh, you know rushdi has his own way of looking at this I don't know I've never really done a webinar on a novel before so and I don't feel like it would serve anyone any good if I just you know went over the plot and characters but I think what would be important to share is what would it take for someone let's say from America or United Kingdom or someone from um, not from india or pakistan to read this novel and that's where the complexity of the novel comes into play because what salman rushdie also inaugurates not inaugurates but accentuates in metropolitan literary production is is that he forces the western reader so called western reader to acknowledge that there can be a whole repertoire of analogies and as well but allusions for that a normal reader will not be prepared an average graduate of my department at university of north texas will have to be trained to understand who shahrzad is right who what is hamza nama what is the mythology of indian faith and religions right all of these things what he does is he forces the metropolitan reader to acknowledge that there are civilizations beyond europe and if you really want to read a good story about them you will have to familiarize yourself with their religious and historical mythologies and i think that's a great service to post colonial studies so i'm going to just briefly maybe find another theme in the novel and one thing is the language in it there is a term in post colonial studies that we call metonymic gap right metonymic gap is when a post colonial author would put materials in in the language will use certain similes or metaphor or vocabulary that cannot really be understood stood if you only know english that requires you to go and gain additional cultural knowledge to make sense of the sentences or a passage 
and he does that a lot in here another thing that he does with the language in midnight's children and pretty much all of his work is that he would he would put terms from hindi or urdu in there which he doesn't gloss right and that also creates this complexity another added layer of complexity to the language of the novel itself now formalistically the novel is pulling from the european novelistic tradition but also from the dastan tradition of india and the middle east but linguistically he is mixing his language with you know normal english with how english is spoken by indian middle classes but how english vocabularies are employed by normal people and sometimes it's a literal translation like there are there are moments where he will say believe not believe right which people who know hindi or urdu would immediately understand because even when we were kid we will say in urdu or hindi that you know believe not believe or kitab uh, vitab right all of these terms he translates them here without giving us a key which forces the metropolitan reader to you know to go and learn more now there is one big flaw in the novel i don't know if uh, any critics have picked it up because there is a also a very postmodern twist that he uses in the novel which he of course borrows from bollywood is this idea that salim senai was switched with another kid who was a servant's child and he shows up later right his name is shiva and he's also one of the special children so we go on reading this novel where salim senai has inherited certain physical traits that are his father's the nose and everything else right we read about it and then we learn towards the middle of the novel that the children were switched and shiva is the actual son of salim senai's father and then you have to go back and figure out okay if the children were switched how is it that salim senai has certain biological resemblances with his father rishi never really explains it and a lot of us who read it we just gloss over it but to me that's kind of a narrative flaw a technical flaw in the novel and i don't think so rishi resolves it okay, so it it can be called a novel of india because it most of it is set in india but it's, it's india during its colonial time so you will see references to jallianwala bagh you will see references to congress the muslim league the communal divide then independence of india which is inextricably connected to partition and creation of pakistan then part of the story in india part of the story in pakistan and then part of the story at the very moment when the 1971 conflict is being fought between pakistan army the the bangladeshi independence movement and the indian intervention all of these are deeply troubling and controversial pressure points of south asia right because people have different opinions on them partition indians and pakistanis have completely different opinions on them then creation of bangladesh indians pakistanis and bangladeshis have completely different opinions on them so in one novel are then packed all these pressure points of south asia and they we are made privy to that through the experience of our narrator 
Salim Senai, who seems to have lived through all the major historical events of the region. So in a way, then the novel is not just about India, right? It can be very easily called a South Asian. Now, what would it take for, let's say, someone who's not really familiar with Indian history is to at least know some basic aspects of colonialism in India. What kind of a system was developed by the British? What kind of political parties existed who fought for independence? Indian National Congress, you know, Indian Muslim League, then the creation of India and Pakistan and the migration that happened and the massacres that happened. I mean, about two million people died in the transmigration immediately after India and Pakistan got their freedom. And then also the death and massacres in the 1971 civil war, which for Bangladeshis, of course, was a war of independence and uh, and the controversial aspects of that. Then the role of Indira Gandhi and her family the Nehru family in Indian politics, how does Indira Gandhi eventually become in the 1970s, mid-1970s, autocratic, right, and declares the only emergency in Indian history, right, uh, in free Indian, post-independence Indian history. And then the tragedy of more one, two, three dictatorships in Pakistan. So you can also read then through Salim Salim Sinai's experiences, not just the colonial experience of these regions, but the post-colonial promise or failure as these nations grow and reach the 80s. And India is represented as this place of endless possibilities in Midnight's Children, right? It is diverse. It has thousands upon thousands of options. But the idea of India that he's representing towards the end of the novel is pretty bleak. And so he doesn't spare Indian politicians or Indian. But there is no doubt in the novel that Irushti, of course, prefers the richness of the Indian culture. Maybe at the risk of kind of flattening the Pakistani culture, but, you know, Pakistani themselves are good at doing that, so they don't need Rushdi to do it. How is this book received in Pakistan? I don't know. Um, When I was in Pakistan, I read it and enjoyed it. I mean, I was one of the lucky people who read The Satanic Verses the year that it came out. It was banned, but a friend of mine had smuggled it. So I read it when I was in the Pakistan army. So I think uh, people who enjoy complex novels and writings would like the novel. I don't think so anyone will teach it in Pakistan for political reasons, right? You know, the kind of public culture that we are developing in Pakistan, sadly, is that, you know, people's lives can be imperiled if they teach Salman Rushdie or talk about him which is sad, and I think it's not a great recipe for building a great nation, but then I don't live in Pakistan. So uh, reception would depend on who read it, how did they read it, what is their training. Uh, Most scholars that I know of, you know, they of course love the book, but 
majority of people who have an, an opinion on Salman Rushdie's work in Pakistan actually have not read Salman Rushdie. So could you please explain further? It seems that there is an open debate about its depth. Yeah, good. So, okay, magic realism, especially the kind that uh, Garcia Marquez and other boom writers from Latin America do, one important distinction that we are taught to make is that it is magic realism if magic is represented as part of everyday life. If magical aspects of the story point to themselves as being magical, then it's fantasy, then it's not magic realism. That's why we add realism to it. So if you read Garcia Marquez, right, any instance of magic that is represented there, it's represented within the logic of the story that it it happens oh, so-and-so is flying and -and so-and-so has come back from the dead. There is no announcing that, oh, this is something strange happening. Now, how did Garcia Marquez come up with it? In one of his interviews, when he was asked about his technique, he basically said that when he was trying to come come up with a writerly voice, he remembered how his grandmother used to tell her stories. And when she told her stories, there was no reference to, oh, and then something magical happened. She will just state it as it is. So that's one of the distinctions to make if you're going to declare something magic realism, is that the magical part of the story has to be represented as if it's an everyday happening, and that it's not something special and magical. And I think that's important to keep in mind. But because then it borders into fantasy. And in the fantasy, we already know because a whole fantastical world is created and it has its own logic and we believe in it. But at all times, we believe in it because it exists in that fantastical world. Magic realism, you are in the real world and magical things are happening, but they are not necessarily represented as magical things. They are magical, but they are part of the logic of the world in which you live. So that's the distinction to make. Yeah, so yes, Infinita, you see, it's a different technique in 100 Years of Solitude and here. I have a question, Jahang, regarding the novel. Don't you believe Midnight's Children uses magical realism as a tool to rewrite the partition of India from an anti-communal and anti-nationalist perspective? Well, I mean, the first point is already debatable whether it is magic realism or not. I... I practically do not care which point of view does it uses. Um, Almost all major novels of India see the creation of Pakistan not as a natural outcome, but as an outcome of communal politics. Okay, heightening of communal politics, built on the idea that Muslims and Hindus' differences were irreconcilable, but they could not live together, which an idea that was defied by history itself, which was totally constructed out of thin air, right? Because Muslims and Hindus had lived together for centuries and are still living together with some political tensions, but those tensions happen not naturally, but because they are politicized. So if the novel is trying to think the partition of India in terms of communal politics, yeah, maybe it is. Uh, To me, after, if you read... um, Aisha Jalal, it's pretty obvious that 
communalism was a part of the politics of the division of india and pakistan uh, so so yeah it's trying to retrieve an idea of india which is beyond communalism but it fails eventually because that the politics disrupts that whole idea now if you're going to uh, novels of india if you read river of fire or kadaria it has the same thing that these people live together with their differences of course but but it is after the partition is when they start seeing each other as the other and that is inscribed in that indian and pakistani politics of seeing the other as the other because objective differences are mobilized to a certain politics if you look at india and pakistan right now and bangladesh the, the two nations of india and pakistan have so much historically in common that if they could dare to imagine if their leaders the politicians and intellectuals could dare to imagine they could very easily sit together and say hey guys like let's restrict let's open this border up and let's create a confederacy of autonomous regions but with a central government that is exactly what mr jinnah had wanted pakistan but yeah it, you can very easily read it as a critique of communalism as a critique of failure of india's promise and that i read the novel as that as well but the thing about a novel of this scale is that there is no way you can you can actually do any extensive work in an essay or an article so you have to pick up one chunk of it and you know write about that or or read about that when i teach once or twice when i've taught midnight's children you know i've taught it over about 6 weeks in a semester because we wanted to go over it carefully and even then i realized i had not done a good job sir sir can we say magical realism is expression of repression I don't know what that question means. I mean, uh, first of all, you will have to define what repression is, okay? And its expression can be in any form. It can be in realistic form. It can be in the in the form of sublimation. You're repressing something. You go and do something that is permissible. It can be uh, so uh, that the repression and magic realism. They, they, I don't see direct correlation. can someone press their repressed memories through delusions yes absolutely but magic realism is a form of writing i i don't think that it it is a natural outcome of repression it can be a natural outcome of a hedonistic way of life as well right that someone enjoys a certain fantastical way of living and then he or she goes and creates that there are many perspectives on partition now we have to accept it as a fact and treat each other as independent neighbors and talk yeah absolutely i agree with that i think both sides now with modi and pakistanis there is a tendency to create this other this menacing other because it makes politics easy it makes keeping people in check easy right and it 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 gives becomes a really great justification of whatever you want to do as people in power but i would i absolutely agree that they should take the partition as a, a historical fact and then turn around and say okay you know our ancestors lived together 
right? We used to have villages in which there used to be a temple, a mosque, a gurdwara. Can we sit and talk and have peace? That would, and if they did that, if they had the courage to do that, look at the history that they can rely on of having lived together, shared languages, you know, shared stories. So absolutely, I agree with that. But here is the thing, I get this question a lot. Uh, people would uh, ask me, here is the essay I have an exam on, here is the book, can you help? You don't need help with that from anyone. No one should expect you to reproduce answers in a literature exam that are perfect. Okay, so what we do, I do on this channel through these live talks, but also through recorded videos is to introduce you to tools. If someone tells you, go and give me your two-page opinion on this short story, you don't need Masood Raja to tell you what that story means. You take the concepts that you've learned, you read the story with that, and your own opinion is valid as long as you can prove it that within the context of the story, what you are saying can mean what you are saying it means. Now, the problem is I don't think so. It's not with you. It's with the educational systems that we have, somewhat in India, but mostly also in Pakistan, where people in humanities expect us to have precise answers or one answer to a question. And no one can help you with that, except for the teacher who's asking you to answer the questions, because if he or she is not willing to entertain a different answer, supported by your reading of the story, then you have to point blank ask them, give me an essay in which you have answered that question so that I can memorize it and reproduce it. So keep that in mind that in humanities, there are no single correct answers. They are all provisional and they are all dependent on where we come from, what our politics is, what our preferred modes of reading are, and what are we reading in a story and then reproduce it. As long as you can convince your audience that your argument makes sense, that's a good enough answer. Okay, Mary, yes, uh, please do read the novel. You will enjoy it. Uh, Amit, sir, please say something about Ngugi Wachango. So, uh, Amit, I have a, a few lectures on Ngugi, right? Especially one on Devil on the Cross, but also on his uh, scholarly writing. You can watch those, but that gives me a good idea. Maybe in the future we can do like one whole discussion on Devil on the Cross. Now, do keep in mind that Ngugi Thiango is, isn't just a writer. He's also an activist. He's also a scholar. So when you talk about him and read his works, it's also important to read Decolonizing the Mind, which is his book, which deals with issues of colonial education and language and what role does language play on it. Now on my channel, I think I have one recorded lecture on his handling of the question of language and then of course I have one introductory conversation on the devil on the cross which should really help you with Ngugi Chiango. But are there not any Muslims in a of course yeah I mean uh, Muslims are the largest minority in India and actually Muslims in India are actually the largest population of Muslims living in a nation state. 
right? Maybe other than Indonesia. So pretty much all parts of India have Muslims living with other religions. In some areas, they uh, are a very large minority or even a majority in Kashmir. But pretty much they live in the south, they live in the north. So and they've lived there for centuries. The Indian Muslims who live in the India's south, they didn't even come from the north. They came from the different trade routes. So yes, it is a mixed population. I would say there is not even a single Indian state that doesn't have Muslims living in it. India is religion in terms of religion, one of the most diverse nations on the planet. Okay, so Fayaz, sir, can partition literature be studied? That well, anything can be studied as part of the revisionist history. Now, the point is, do you take revisionist as a derogatory term, or do you take it as something that allows us to imagine history differently? Now, if you're talking about historiography in Pakistan, especially in Pakistan studies, uh, you bring me any books on Pakistan studies from Pakistan, and I can promise you that. And I will, in 30 minutes, tell you how much of it is hagiography and fiction and how much of it is actual history. In my opinion, what I've read of historical works on Pakistan, in Pakistan, on partition, other than Aisha Jalal's work and a few other scholars like Tariq Ali and others, all others are doing hagiography. No one tells you the actual background, the actual story. So it comes across as revisionist history because a lot of time people in Pakistan are not familiar with what was actually happening. And no one teaches us that. I went through the Pakistani educational system. You know, all my life I memorized 14 points of Qaeda-Azam, right? Or, uh, you know, the 1956 constitution. No one actually taught me why did it take us until 1956 to make a constitution. So revisionist history then depends on what is it that you're calling revisionist? Is it a history that challenges the normative drive of a national history? And so in that sense, it is revisionist because it's saying, here are the things that you're missing. Then that's a good thing. Revisionist history can also be mobilized to underwrite the most terrible things in the world, right? By creating uh, an alternative word in which a certain group or a constituency is demonized and made responsible for certain things that happen to the majority community. And so that kind of revisionist writing can become deeply destructive, right? So you will have to first define what do you mean by revisionist history? What's your opinion on it? And then that will give you the idea of whether or not these novels can be considered that or not. One aspect of the linguistic education, and it comes across clearly if you read Ngugi's Colonizing the Mind, is how human subjectivities are created through colonial languages. I've talked about it previously as well. But part of it is as you are learning English or French as a language of communication, what you are also internalizing as a child is the superiority of that language and hence the superiority of that culture. So the trauma of colonial education then isn't just that you lose your own language, but that you have also internalized this implicitly, this idea that somehow the Europeans are superior. So the project of undoing it is, is huge. 
because you first have to retrieve your own languages and culture teach them that and then teach them not to hate english or french but maybe to teach them that there is something worthy of loving and respecting in their own culture as well going to jahangir the novel begins with dr aziz's experience kashmir it recalls us dr aziz in forester's a passage to india which ends with aziz settling in kashmir it's absolutely significant as i said the novel midnight children is highly intertextual so it's significant in two senses is one that it's drawing on a previously established novel a passage to india but two it's also um, kind of drawing on rushdie's own preference of kashmir as one of the regions that he really loves but also kashmir and its significance for the nehru family for the pandits right and so all of that i think is intertwined in setting the novel in kashmir and if you read the passages in kashmir the way rushdie describes the dal lake and that's one of the only parts of the novel which is deeply poetic right and is beautiful because we know as rishti describes the valley it it's written out of a lot of love so absolutely you can make that connection what is neo colonization so i have a video on it already you should watch it out uh, you if you know what colonization is you can very easily define neo colonization yourself colonization is when one dominant group actually goes and captures the spaces and culture of another minority group and then tries to dictate their life through hegemony or dominance according to their own group so if you have that definition in mind then there can be internal colonizations there can be external colonizations i have a video on neo imperialism because my idea is that the former colonial powers and powerful nations in the world do not need to go and actually colonize the global spaces so there is a new form of imperialism where the economic policies and sometimes the political policies are remotely controlled by powers that be and that is a form of neo colonialism but in its imperialistic form because there is no physical occupation Every parts of India have Muslim community and it is diverse in nature because of the diverse nature of India. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, I agree with that. <clears throat> I am I have no qualms in telling anyone my own students here or any other scholars in the world that to me despite all its problems and we all know India has its problems the problem in Kashmir right dealing with Kashmiris the problems of adivasis the problems of the dalit population with all those problems india is the most diverse democracy in the world the most promising democracy in the world think of it this way let me here is a nation of 1 billion people they have been able to sustain a democratic system for 72 years right they have had uninterrupted transition of power from one elected government to another for 72 years how many post colonial nations have accomplished that they have had one constitution since 1950s 
written by B.R. Ambedkar. They've had amendments in it. So that's not denying the fact that India has deep problems which are in the novel as well. And that, But maintaining that kind of a democratic system for a complex, complex culture is, is an accomplishment and we need to acknowledge that. And I absolutely agree with that. What about Pakistan? I, you know, I'm from Pakistan, right? No Pakistani can ever tell me that I'm not from Pakistan because the village where my family still lives, we have lived there for more than 1,000 years. So all these Parvez Musharraf and these generals and others, I don't really care whether they consider me Pakistani or not. But Pakistan's history is tragic. I mean, tragic in a sense that it's it's a country that has a lot of promise it has a lot of young brilliant people a lot of hard working people who who eke out their living despite what is going on a lot of decent caring people right? but it has not been able to cobble together a viable political system and that is a fact and the reason they haven't been able to because there have been interruptions we have had three martial laws under one pretext or another so what happens in a nation is when when, when non-democratic forces take over power they don't just take over power they corrupt the system because people no longer can develop a way of thinking of themselves as citizens of a democracy and develop the responsibilities and privileges of them so that's a huge tragedy in Pakistan. But as long as the people go, and especially the young people, I think, you know, they're as good or as bad as young people anywhere in the world. I'm still hopeful about Pakistan. But I think their intellectuals will need more freedom to express themselves. I mean, right now, the reality in Pakistan is that there are institutions you cannot talk about. You can't touch religion, right, because they will threaten you. You can't touch the military and other institutions critically because they threaten you. So the intellectuals and the young people who want to write, they have this really limited space unless they want to imperil their lives, right? And that's a terrible thing for any public sphere to have. And that is the tragedy of Pakistan because if their intellectuals are not free to write and talk about any issue that is important to them, and if they are not producing knowledge in them, then that is harming the general public sphere and how people think about things. But overall, you know, I will never stop loving Pakistan because, you know, that's where I came from. Yes, I mean, you can see not only in India. I mean, I live in United States. See how fragile democratic systems are. Our national capital got invaded last week. That is the beauty and the ultimate fragility of democracy that it relies on consensus and it is not a dictatorial system and that all democratic systems are fragile and need constant practice of sustaining them and need constant thinking about sustaining them because if if you take your eyes off some demagogue from here or there is going to mobilize people to undo the project of democracy. So democracy as a system is the most promising system anywhere in the world, but also the most fragile because it requires the active, learned, critical participation of the people. 
of the how to engage with everyday decolonial how to make sense of academy that cites decolonial while i i am very skeptical of how decolonialism is being uh, mobilized by some of my pakistani friends i don't believe in binaries i uh, and spivak and baba and, and said would agree with you this idea of east west and north and south yeah when i'm criticizing literally how power works i will criticize america and canada but i don't work through pure decolonial knowledge there is nothing such as that if you are going to retrieve your own cosmologies and things the best use of them is not to create an independent sphere where you say here is our decolonized knowledge and we're not going to bring anything from outside that will create the most destructive knowledge available because it is not in the present interacting with the knowledge elsewhere in the world so i have a problem with how decolonialism is being retrieved in india in pakistan in india uh, i have a couple of people who are dharma scholars and so their idea is that if we jettison the western influence and retrieve the pure concept of dharma and how it is practiced we'll make a great world no you won't make a great world because it will bring along with it its own inequalities its own oppressions because they are inscribed in it and they are inscribed in it and then people will read it and interpret it and you will create a world which will then go out to say we are a hindu majority country we should be a hindu nation similarly scholars in pakistan are basically saying if we islamize our thought we have been islamizing our thought for 70 years we haven't accomplished much so far but the idea is no this is has to be islamized let's go retrieve some ghazali let's go retrieve some alkindi uh, you know all the other scholars and jettison you know kant and hegel and all and maybe will come up now i mean the best islamic scholars were great scholars because they were aware of both the tradition dr fazlur rahman even iqbal to some extent sayyid qutb even to me how to engage with decolonization i would say is never be hesitant to borrow knowledge from anyone for as long as it enables you to create a more humane equal and compassionate world now if you want to infuse it with your own philosophy with your own religion there is nothing wrong with it if it liberates more people so i become slightly consequential or utilitarian when it comes to the world if it enables more people if it makes the world a tolerant place yeah that is to me the right form of decolonial knowledge rushdi's satanic verses is considered by many muslims what's your view sir i'm not going to give you my view on a public forum like that but my views on the satanic verses are published in three articles that are already available you can read them and my views on the satanic verses are available uh, will be available in my forthcoming book which actually starts with the rushdi affair but i will um, for as long as i want to go back to pakistan and visit my family and not feel threatened by the people i i, I am very hesitant to give an opinion in a flippant manner on a book of that complexity why do the writer from the ex colonies produce literature in the colonizers language rather than in any indigenous legacy that's a really good question and this is a question that chin wezu asks in decolonizing the african mind and actually ngugi tiango also asks the same question in um, 
Decolonizing the Mind in his book. And in African studies, there are two huge, uh, what do you call it, segments of African literary production. There was one group led by Chinua Achebe and others who believed that the colonial languages are a gift that the colonizers left us and there should be nothing wrong in producing knowledge in them and, and writing in them. And then there is a group of people like Chin Wezu and Ngugi Tiango who say that, no, there is a need of producing literature in our native languages so that people can connect to it better. These are the two schools of thought in Africa. I think it doesn't really matter which language you use to write, but it should not be at the cost of the native languages. English should not replace, let's say, you know, Brahvi or Balochi or Tamil or any other native languages. English should not supplant it. So there can be parallel traditions and they should be respected and they should be protected. Other than that, you know, be my guest. If you want to go write in Greek, do that. You know, the, the, a text is not just the language that carries it. It also has the politics behind it. Karl Marx wrote capital in German. We read it in English. Right? It doesn't become less revolutionary when we read it in English. Okay, Saeed is also very much critical on binarism. Absolutely. Uh, and even if you read his entire oeuvre, you know, Saeed was a product of the Western educational system. And he's a great example of how to construct a critical self. A critical self that's aware of the deep discussions of the metropolitan culture, right? And it all its lineage, philosophical and other. And then it infuses it with the knowledge of its own culture. I just recently recorded a supplement to Saeed's discussion of worldliness. That's a great example of a scholar who, who knows exactly where the debate is in the metropolitan culture on how to read a text, right? But where is he going to get his sources, right? He's going to the 11th century Spain, to Al-Andalus, to, to take people like Ibn Hazm and three other Muslim grammarians from there and their views on language, on Zahiriya and Bataniya. And then he weaves that into his debate of the value of a literary text. And that is brilliant because that allows him to argue for a different mode of reading at a higher level of abstraction, but also retrieving resources that were otherwise forgotten even by the Arabs themselves. And I think that's the brilliant kind of scholarship that I would encourage in my students, you know, instead of just relying on I am Hindu and I'm Muslim and I'm Pakistani and I'm Indian. Those are very small, easy signifiers to place ourselves in. Maybe life becomes easier, but I'm sure it's not richer, richer in intellectual and spiritual sense, you know. Okay, so we've been going on for quite some time now. As I always, you know, we start with a given topic and when we, then we go elsewhere. But overall, if you have not read Midnight's Chill uh, and you want to read an, an exemplary novel, a novel that tells the story of one of the most complex post-colonial nation states, but also regions, but does that with humor, 
by parodying history and historical characters, by juxtaposing real-life historical events with fictionalized historical events through the voice of a very interesting first-person narrator and a novel that is enriched by the novelistic tradition of, 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 of the West, but also storytelling tradition of India and the East, I think this would be a great novel. Now, you can't just pick it up and read it on a flight. You have to, it's a postmodern, late modernist text. And one attribute of any modernist text is that it tells you, I'm a work of art. If you want to read me, you will have to read me carefully, page by page, and then I will render my secret to you. Some post-colonial writings are cynical anthropologies. I don't know if I can answer this question because you'll have to give me a specific text to work with here. I mean, think of it this way. I mean, where do scholars come from? Scholars live in the world. They have a politics. They have their preferences. Sometimes micro, where are they working? Are they working towards promotion? Are they working towards self-engrandizement? All of these things play a role in what they produce. Some scholars are connected to the public sphere. They are connected to the world. They think of the world and say, maybe I can help change it, right? Then their writing would be different. Some scholars are connected to national politics. They are nationalistic. They are American. I can bring you works of American scholars who believe in the myth of American nationalism, and their writing would be completely different from Noam Chomsky. So depending on the situatedness of the scholar, then you have to distinguish whether they are in that purely Gramscian sense, if they are foundational scholars or organic intellectuals. If they are foundational scholars, they are speaking for an institution, for a government, for a nation. So that means their politics is aligned with that. If they are organic intellectuals, maybe their politics is aligned with the people, with a constituency that is struggling. All of this bears upon whether your work is cynically anthropological, whether you're trying to sell the tropes of your own culture to an international audience. All of that is, is inscribed within that practice. And you have to distinguish who is coming from where and what are you imputing on them or whether you're fair in doing that. That is where your critical repertoire comes in. Jangir Khan, is it true that Midnight's Children Rushdie ignores or silences the role the British played in creating circumstances? No, he doesn't silence it. it it's, there's a pretty strong indictment of the British abdication of responsibility. Absolutely. I am a student of English literature, but I have boycotted blasphemers. It is a name that always be kept as a Okay, you feel free. I mean, absolutely. I teach in America, so, you know, I have my own way of looking at things. You can absolutely choose to do whatever you feel like to me. So, Infinita, yes, uh, I have read all of his short stories, East, West, and uh, I read them quite a while ago, but I think I'm teaching one this coming semester, and that is The Quarter from East, West. But yes, I am aware of his short stories and also uh, I've read all of his essays too. I mean, I did my master's thesis on Salman Rushdie. So absolutely, I've read those. Okay, Larry, great. So if you're working on them in your thesis, yeah, uh, please feel free to message me and we can talk some more about it. 
Yeah, absolutely. Nadia, can you say something about the transnational perspective in Rishti's work? Yes, of course. I mean, if you look at all of Rishti's repertoire, most of his early novels, the three early novels, and I'm not counting Grimace, but if you look at Midnight's Children, Shame, and The Satanic Verses, in the first two, he stays in the subcontinent. In the second one, he's in London. right and also in the period of uh, of the early rise of islam then you go to his later novels they deal with one is about hollywood one is about bollywood then we are in spain so pretty much in one we are in of course in quite a few we are in america so in so many ways things that he has written about are already transnational in terms of the setting but also then the views that he expresses in so many of his works are also transnational because you can't pinpoint it as british only or indian only or pakistani only because in so many ways there is a wonderful book by timothy brennan it was an early book by him on salman rushdie which was called cosmopolitanism and the third world novel in which he was trying to say why is it that cosmopolitanists of which he considers rishti one of them have a problem in getting a lot of traction in literary production because they lack a habitus whereas people who write in nationalistic traditions their work is received differently but do also keep in mind that timothy brennan is one of the very few defenders of the nation state in opposition to forces of globalization i mean of course his reasons are very complex and not chauvinistic and all but that's the perspective from where that book comes from but i think it's called salman rushdie and the third world novel that's the book and and so pretty much it goes without saying that everyone acknowledges rushdie as a transnational novel in terms of his own subjectivity as an author but also in terms of what he writes and and the issues that he deals with so here is the thing and i'm going to leave you on this when you do literary studies it will depend on where you are one aspect of any humanistic education is that you don't restrain your thought because the decision that you make about any text or how you receive it and how you write about it should be informed decisions we are scholars right we are writers we are teachers anyone who thinks that words of one or two authors can can you know technically destroy our mind and our morality is already imagining that we have such weak structures of subjectivity that they can be corrupted by a book yeah for children maybe we need to give them a more guided education but after you become scholars and you're intellectually sound you'll form your own opinions whatever i've published about salman rushdie i've never published like a work which says oh i love salman rushdie not highly critical of salman rushdie the way he represents women the way he represents even islam well, i've been highly critical of it but i've been highly critical of it from an informed perspective now my forthcoming book right democratic criticism poetics of incitement and the muslim sacred basically tries to answer one question and that is the silence in the west to explain the anguish felt by muslim readers right and why is it that that anguish and its 
non-violent expression was derided and laughed at that is the question that that book is trying to answer in order to write that book i have to read salman rushdie i have to read everything that he has written i cannot write that book simply by saying that i i, I blocked salman rushdie right so that is what is at stake if you want to develop a voice if you want to speak for a constituency that has been silenced you have to go and learn the vocabularies the abstraction at which you will mount that challenge you cannot do that by simply excluding knowledge that might not be familiar to you or might be unsettling so that's the kind of work i encourage my students to do so the fayaz the role of translations by and large i think it it is a very enabling role think of it i would have not been familiar with a 100 years of solitude without a translation i would have not been able to teach in my english classes river of fire had it not been available in translation i would have not been able to teach the adventures of amir hamza if musharraf ali farooqi had not translated it so now i i'm aware as a scholar the of the limitations of a translation you know because a translation cannot carry what any abstract calls the untranslatable right and that we already know but i think if we if we take a translation and read it and teach it and we enter it with the humility to acknowledge that it cannot replace the original i think we will still be better off if in comparison to if we didn't have a translation so that's somehow my idea about translation going to leave you here we've been going for quite some time now and this will also be available later but uh, the idea is rushdi or any other author that you read i have never entered a book any book sacred or profane with this idea that it will give me all the answers because no book does all you do is you bring yourself to it and part of what you're reading is yourself but what i do believe is that if we really want to do something in the world make a difference we have to connect our work to the public and we have to connect our work to the silenced constituencies to speak in solidarity with them not for them ever but with them and to develop more and more lateral solidarities through our work through our teaching and that's what i focus on so i hope this was useful to you i am going to conclude here and thank you so much for joining me and please do also keep in mind that we have a facebook page you can join us there we also now have a podcast which is called post colonial space you can join us on the podcast as well the links will be in the description and as always i will announce uh, the topic for the next week probably you know in the beginning of next week and if all goes well i will see you next saturday so thank you so much and you all have a wonderful saturday bye bye and as always peace and love